0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. This is another Alpha Chat short segment, just one interview, and our guest today is Arlie Russell Hochschild. She's a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and she spent the last five years studying the conservative working class in the Louisiana Bayou, and she's got a new article in Mother Jones Magazine explaining why the people she spent so much time with hold the political views that they hold, including, yes, why so many of them plan to vote for Donald Trump. The article is an excerpt from her new book called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, and that book is out today. She joins us now on the line from Berkeley, California. Arlie, thanks for agreeing to talk to us. Well, my pleasure. So before we get into the Mother Jones article in the book, uh, I actually want to ask about the title, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land. Uh, Why don't you just start by telling us uh, who are the strangers uh, and, and why do you refer to them that way?
1: You know, a lot of studies have shown that increasingly we live in different enclaves, you know. And when people move, they don't just move to nicer weather and cheaper houses and better jobs. They move to to places where other their neighbors think the way they do. So we really are geographically separated from one another. So I had to figure, well, where would I go to to get into an equal and an opposite enclave? I yeah. thought, well, you know, it would be in the South and among whites, because that's where the rise of the right has been the strongest. So how we're in the South. And I looked at a study of uh, who voted for Barack Obama among whites in 2012, and it was 46% of Californians. It was 29% of whites in the South as a whole, and it was only 14% of whites in Louisiana. So Louisiana was kind of the super South. And so I thought, okay, let me go there. And when I got there, I realized it wasn't just a high concentration of Tea Party supporters, but it was a Tea Party world. And what made them feel like strangers, I think uh, is the question you're really um, looking at. Mm-hmm. Is is that they looked at what the nation was saying about them, and they felt that the nation was saying, um, "You people have are backward, and um, you're." pro-life and you're pro-family, you're homophobic, you know, and you're against women, Uh, they felt put down uh, for their beliefs. And they felt that they were highly religious people, but that there was a growth of secularism, you know, and you couldn't say, um, Merry Christmas. And they also felt on a demographic declined, that there were fewer and fewer white Christian older people like themselves. They felt their region was put down. Oh, you're southern, you're hilbertly, you're badly educated. And they they also felt that their the struggles they've had to um encounter in their lives to make a living. Um were kind of discounted. It was kind of a social class snobism that they felt they were facing. So putting it all together, they felt in an honor squeeze. They felt forgotten, unrecognized that the goodness of them had been disappeared. And that's what made them feel like strangers in their own land.
0: You introduced the concept of a deep story. Uh, you distinguish it from Uh, the more superficial explanations that people might sometimes give for why they hold the views that they hold. You emphasize the deep story. So why don't you tell us uh, what do you mean by deep story and what is in fact the deep story uh, of the people that you spent all this time with?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when I asked people, you know, what does politics mean to you? They would tell me what their values were. I believe in freedom. You know, uh, I, uh, I believe uh in church and uh the constitution they they would tell me their their beliefs, or they would tell me uh what policies they wanted to follow, and you know back in Berkeley people gave those kinds of answers too, but it seemed to me the longer I hung out with people, and the longer the better I got to know them over a long period of time. The more I felt there was, in politics of any sort, we have to understand what really drives our feelings, and that goes as much for the left as for the right. Both sides have their deep story. And what I did was kind of listen very intently and over a long period of time, doing a lot of things with people, and then I kind of made up, in a way, a metaphor-driven story and then I asked them, "Is this does this correspond to really how it feels? And they said, yes, it did. And it goes like this. You're waiting in a line, a long line, up a hill, uh, as if in a pilgrimage. At the top of the hill is the American dream. You're waiting in line. You have a feeling of having worked extremely hard and deserving the reward at the top of the hill. And you're patient. You don't have anything against anybody else in line, but the line is not moving. And then you see some people cutting ahead of you. You think, wait a minute, that's not fair. And who are these people? Well, in the perspective of of those with this deep story, they are affirmative action-sponsored blacks or career women, making it into men's jobs uh and it's immigrants, refugees, and even well paid public sector workers seem to be getting ahead of you and The more these groups move in and elbow ahead, the more you're pushing back in line and Then you notice that there's Barack Obama uh, who's supposed to be supervising the line. he seems to be waving to the people who are butting in in fact. He's he's sponsoring them. The idea is, and he's allied with them and not with you. In fact, is is he too kind of someone who got special advantages? How did the son of a single mother pay for Harvard and Columbia? This just kept coming up as as I thought. So there was this feeling of being pushed back and. Um, feeling it was unfair, and feeling that the government itself had become a giant, to them, marginalization machine. It was constructing your own marginalization and making you a stranger in your own land. And to boot, there are people who were ahead of them in line, they felt, who were turning around and saying, Oh, you redneck. You know, you you belong where you are in line. So they felt insulted and frightened. I would say, underneath the story was the feeling that economically, there was the line just wasn't moving. There was no moving ahead, and that perhaps the same trap door to the working class that had. Led to terrible economic news for blacks would now also happen to whites. So I think there was fear infused with a sense of estrangement. And, you know, when Donald Trump came along, I felt, oh, you know, I'm not a stranger in my own land. You know, it's, it's going to give me the old America back.
0: Yeah, a lot of the kind of uh, intelligentsia or the intellectual class um, or the commentariat, whatever you want to call them, has been debating for uh, some time now, especially this year, just what it is uh, that accounts for uh, the rise in popularity of Donald Trump, or at least the rise in uh, what seems like um, quite a bit of uh, populist sentiment. And it usually breaks down into one of two categories. One is economic worries, uh, economic anxiety. Um, The other is a kind of racial resentment, um, which is different from outright racism, although it incorporates it. And and the debate has kind of gone back and forth. Uh, It seems like from this explanation, uh, you're incorporating both explanations. In other words, that they're somewhat intertwined. So the American Mm -hmm. ideal is this increasingly Mm -hmm. unreachable ideal, according to this perception. Um, And yet they see a lot of other people uh, making strides towards it. Uh, Mm -hmm. while they themselves uh, feel further distance from it.
1: Right. And they feel that their whole life world is kind of um, being forgotten and that the government is not doing anything to help them. So that's right. Uh, I think it isn't just economics. It's not just racism. I mean, there's and a lot of the people I talk to I would not call racist. I mean, it's a complicated thing and they themselves were horrified to be labeled that way. They didn't feel understood by liberals. And I think one thing that comes out of this book is that many liberals um in fact aren't aren't looking for the common ground that they could find with people on the right, you know there are many issues on which we could find uh common ground, and there are crossover issues, but liberals have failed in this way to reach out it's I feel like they didn't ask for Donald Trump, Donald Trump came to them, he rose up, and the people I came to know were kind of backed into support for him. I, I he wasn't their first choice. It's as if the public uh picture we have of Donald Trump is that he's he's appealing to all the bad angels on the right. And I think what we don't see is the good angels that are there. And uh that's because we're not looking at at the deep story that makes sense and feels true to them. And we're not looking at our own deep story. So I think we have to get a conversation going deep story to deep story.
0: Sure. Uh, There's one other uh, fascinating point you make in the article, um, which is that this is a group that historically would not be sort of forthcoming about wanting to receive uh, help from the government, accessing the social safety net, even in circumstances where, you know, quite frankly, they could use the help, they could use a little bit of a boost. The point you make is that, in a sense, Trump has masculinized the idea of accepting a little bit of help from the government, that he's made it more acceptable, um, right. and that some people now uh, view that as a message that maybe they didn't know they wanted. That's right.
1: I think there's a big division on the right. Right between the Tea Party, um, who really very seriously want to uh, cut and diminish the federal government. They don't want big government. They think it's wrong headed, doesn't do things well, taxes us too much, and uh, that's the big issue for them. And people who are going for Trump, who does not want to diminish the government. He may want to repurpose it, but there's not much talk about um, cutting food stamps or uh, early childhood education, uh, Head Start. He's not talking like that. And so if you look at the iconography of shame, the things and people that he shames, he shames immigrants, he shames Muslims, he shames women, he shames uh, the disabled But he's not shaming a guy who's working a minimum wage job at a fast food joint and actually can't make ends meet with that, and would have to get some food stamps or some help. It's interesting. That's a little loophole. And much of, if you listen to his speeches, is kind of bravado and rootin' tootin' and you know, sort of gets all these symbols of masculinity going that I think is really designed to address some of the painful experience of very frightened blue-collar men who who uh, feel they're being backed into an economic corner. And not just economics, but their entire life world, instead of moral values, the kinds of values that allow them to feel proud of themselves, that's being threatened. And he, in a way, uh, has been trying to fill that.
0: I want to ask you uh, a question about uh, globalization. Um, Studies kind of differ on whether uh, Trump supporters are, in fact, concentrated uh, in places that have been exposed uh, to trade with China, Mexico, and other countries, uh, and whether or not the loss of manufacturing uh, has been a big driver um of his rise in popularity and a popular sentiment in general um did, did this come up a lot globalization uh either as a concept or as uh as just something that you witnessed um even if people used maybe different language to describe it
1: you know it's interesting yes and no if you just look at their uh exposure to immigration for example which is part of globalization um, they're very few, less than two percent of foreign born w- within Louisiana, and even less than that of Muslims. But there's a lot of talk of of them. You know, Sharia law may be coming to Louisiana, and I kind of wondered where that came from. You know, uh, uh, I think there's a lot of fear of the outside coming in and globalization coming that way. But the way globalization actually has come in seems to me very different. Around southwest Louisiana, where I was talking to a lot of people, uh, you have uh, a growing center of the petrochemical industry, which is uh expanding to make use of the growing supply of cheap natural gas. And those companies are all foreign-owned. There are very few American-based companies there, and they often are highly automated, and they don't actually offer a lot of jobs for people. And a lot of the income that these companies generate uh, have what they call a leakage rate of about a third. That is the money that is earned from uh processing goes to those who are stockholders who are in Greenwich, Connecticut, not in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And many of the top officials, the CEO and the top management, live abroad. They, they don't live right there locally. So globalization has come to this poor community, but it hasn't helped them very much.
0: That is so interesting. In other words, the idea here is that what's visible about these companies is only their foreign names, but not uh, how much money they're actually pouring into communities because they might not be hiring that many people. And maybe they're paying some in taxes, but you don't see that. It's not quite as uh, obvious or quite as noticeable. And so what's left behind uh, is only a sense that parts of the uh, state have been I don't want to say taken over by these companies because that's a little bit dramatic, but that they've implanted themselves there and they're not really helping anybody.
1: That's right. And uh, Governor Bobby Jindal, who was uh, much beloved by initially by conservative Republican voters because he promised to uh, cut the public sector and expand uh, free market capitalism, set enormous um, financial incentives So that $1.5 billion was given in financial incentives to these foreign companies to come in. And regulation was, uh, you know, loosened, quote, made more efficient, and uh, taxes, corporate taxes cut. So the actual citizen in this today, poorest of states...
0: Got very little from these companies. Yeah, that's that's uh, uh, fascinating. That's globalization. It, it, <laughs> it's globalization, but I, I guess it's it's also uh, an example of how because supply chains work the way they do now, um, and because where a company actually puts its physical infrastructure might not have a lot to do uh, with where it sells its products, and just the general distribution uh, of all these activities. Means that it's kind of hard to know what the sociological uh, impact is going to be on the people who actually live nearby uh, where these factories are, which is such a, I guess, a dramatic change from how things worked, you know, 50 years ago. One final question, Arlie. Uh, I'd like to end on a positive note, uh, if we can. So much of our conversation. has been about the division between either left and right or maybe between uh, the working class and the kind of global elite class, uh, if you want to call it that. Maybe we can try to end on a point of uh, harmony, on a point of accord. You mentioned earlier that there were crossover issues uh, that the left in particular has been ignoring. Maybe both sides have been ignoring these crossover issues, these issues on which they might be able to arrive at some kind of an agreement. Uh, Why don't you just elaborate on that a little bit and give us a few examples uh, of what these crossover issues might be?
1: Yes. Well, I guess the most important thing I wanted to convey in my book is that these are amazing people, really extraordinary people you would want to get to know better. And uh, if you hang around with them, you come to respect them. And I think this is an invitation to get out of your enclave and go into another enclave with your alarm system off. It doesn't mean that you turn into a different person or you're whole, you know, political philosophy shifts, it does mean that you open your heart as well as your mind to people who've, um, undergone very different experiences from yours. And, you know, if we'd been in their shoes and we might feel the way they do and they as we, so there's a common humanity and it's, um, it's well-rewarding to get out of your enclave. So that's the first thing. And the second is that there are a lot of crossover issues. I was talking with a man who had undergone a terrible environmental disaster. He lost his home in a drilling accident. But he was Tea Party. He didn't want, you know, big government, you know, regulating uh, too much of life. And so I was asking him about that and we got to talking, and and he said, "Well, look, you know, they've the culture has got us boxed into these extreme sides." He said, "We ought to get money out of politics." <laughs> I said, "Wonderful, that's uh, a very good idea." So the two extremes could really agree that that it shouldn't have the force it does. Also on the environment. This man became an environmentalist and that's another very important crossover issue because, um, many of the red states suffer far more environmental devastation than the blue states. And yet the blue state people have more pro-environmental kind of sentiments. So I think there's a lot that, that could be done there, reducing prison, populations. That's another one. I think actually putting down some steps toward each other, or crossing as I call it in the book, an empathy wall is something that's fun to do, You makes you bigger to do, and if you come at it, not simply to arm yourself with facts and kind of weld them into swords with which to you know, hurl up the other side. But if you, if you come at it with an open heart, you'll find a lot of open hearts on the other side.
0: The book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. The author is Arlie Russell Hochschild. She's been our guest today. Arlie, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. No long form today, everybody. We'll be back with a regular edition of Alpha Chat on Friday, but you can send us an email with feedback to alphachat at ft.com, or you can call us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number, so the country code is plus one if you're an overseas listener. And of course, please leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. Show notes and links to what we've discussed are on ft.com forward slash alpha chat, as always. And you can find me on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks, as always, to the amazing Amy Keene, producer and editor of this podcast. And thanks to our listeners. We'll be here in just a few days with another edition of Alpha Chat.